Good morning, everybody. Good morning to those of you who joined us online. We're glad you all could be here today. Uh, I've mentioned this before, uh, but I'm a terrible person to watch movies with. Uh, it's just true. It's, you know, it, I really am fascinated with the technicalities of storytelling, and I spend a fair amount of time in my job with literary analysis and looking at plot and structure and character development and things like that. And as is the case, when you spend a lot of time doing the same thing over and over again, it just sort of becomes a natural part of what you do, right? And it kind of gets hard to turn off. A good example of this, my wife and I, uh, we were watching a show a few weeks ago, and there was this side character that was introduced. I think it was an uncle or something. And it was a character that the protagonist deeply loved and was just very attached to. And the character was designed in a way that the audience was supposed to get attached to them, too. They were just very warm and just sort of drew you in. And within about five minutes of meeting this character, I turned to my wife. I said, that dude's totally dead. I don't know what's going to happen, but they're going to kill him off. And she looked at me with this really disappointed look on her face. Like, why would you say that? I said, it's obvious. If you want to make a deep emotional impact on an audience while also providing maximum motivation for the protagonist, you just rip away somebody that they love. Everybody knows that. That's like storytelling 101. Like I said, zero fun to watch movies with, right? But it's just part of, of who I am. Have you ever been in a situation like that where, where something just seems so obvious to you, but nobody else really just seems to see it? Yeah, maybe you've been that way when you were watching a movie or TV, or maybe it was like a friend or somebody was getting into a relationship, and there were red flags all over the place, and you saw it, and other people saw it, but like, your friend was in love, and so they just ignored all the red flags, didn't see it. Or maybe you've had this feeling as of late, watching our world develop and some things unfold the way that they have over the last several years. Maybe, maybe you've looked at some of the things that our society has gravitated towards or started to celebrate and endorse and promote, and you're asking yourself, does, does nobody see that this is a bad idea? Does nobody see the danger that the future is fraught with if we go down this path? It, that's the, the frustrating and, and maybe bewildering position that we are going to start with in our message this morning. Today's message is part four in a series that we've been in for a few weeks now called biggest butts in the Bible. And we've been looking at the biggest butts in the book of Ephesians, a book that talks about the changes and the transformations that God works in us through the power of the gospel. And each of these changes involves three letters, B-U-T, that make all the difference. They are the big butts in this book. You once were this, but now you're that. You once were over here, a part of that group, but now you are part of God's family. These are some big changes that God works. And today we're going to wrap things up in this series by looking at one final but. There are more big but statements. I wanted to give you some bonus buts this morning, but we're just not going to have time. So we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. If you've got your Bibles, open those up. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. As always, if you don't have your Bible with you, you can follow along on the screens to the side or probably the best course of action, download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes tool that has our passages pulled up, ready for you to engage with and get the most out of our time together. So, our question, why can't the world recognize some obviously bad ideas that it's pursuing? 
That's the situation that we find ourselves in from time to time, and that's actually the situation that our passage jumps directly into in verse 17. It goes like this, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There is a lot of shade being thrown in this passage, if we can just be honest. A lot that we need to unpack, and we're going to get to that. But before we do, we want to look at verse 17, because there's a really significant statement being made here. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, Gentiles were basically anybody that wasn't Jewish in the first century world. Gentiles worshipped all kinds of different gods, Roman gods, ancestral gods, whatever. They were pagan in their, their religion. This is interesting because the book of Ephesians is written to a church that is comprised of Jewish people that now believe in Jesus and Gentile people that now believe in Jesus. And he's speaking to this largely Gentile audience saying, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, their ethnicity hasn't changed, their heritage hasn't changed, their background hasn't changed. The only thing that's different now is the faith that they've put in Christ, and that is enough to completely distinguish them from whoever, whatever they used to be. It's a really significant statement being made about our identity and our self-understanding. When we put our faith in Christ, this isn't something that we just tack on to the end of who we already were, and we just keep on living life as if nothing has changed. Because the reality is everything has changed. That's kind of been the theme of this whole series. Week one, you once were dead, but now you are alive with Christ. Week two, you once were distant from God, but now you've been brought near through Christ. There's some significant change that God has worked in us. So when we give our hearts, our minds, our lives over to Jesus, we don't just keep on keeping on as if nothing has changed. We are transformed people. And as transformed people, we're encouraged to no longer live as the Gentiles do. And in our modern context, when we look at Gentiles, a good parallel is to just understand that to mean the rest of the broader world. You don't live like everybody else. And the reason you don't live like everybody else is because of the futility in their thinking. It means that the aspirations, the priorities, the worldview, the way of life that the world in general operates by is futile, is fruitless at the end of the day. When all is said and done, it amounts to no consequence. Now that's a really bold statement when you consider we're talking about four billion people. And he's essentially saying that the beliefs, the, the mindset, the priorities, the aspirations of four billion people really don't amount to anything. That's a very confrontational statement, to put it mildly, maybe even an offensive statement to many, many people that would hear that. So if you're going to make such a strong statement, you should probably have some sound reasoning as to why. And that's what verse 18 is. It's the explanation for why the thinking of the world is futile in nature. And it's strung together a series of clauses grammatically that just as somebody explaining it is a lot easier to start at the end and work our way backwards. We're not changing the meaning. The grammar is just as such. If you prefer, we can get the dry erase board and we can diagram the sentence because we all loved that in English class, right? But I think I would prefer to just say it this way if that's okay. We start at the end of verse 18 and we read that the root cause of all of this 
is a hardening of the heart. And the picture there is like a calcified shell that just surrounds our hearts. There's nothing that can penetrate or get in. And this heart has been hardened towards God. Our world in general operates from a position that has displaced his authority as central and does not open itself up to his truth as a result. And it's kind of a a dual cause of this. Part of it is our environment. We live in a world that conditions us and insists that we reject God's absolute objective authority and truth and instead live by other standards and means. But it's also an individual choice that every single one of us has made. It's something that we choose. If, If you need an illustration to help understand a little better, think of the criminal justice system a little bit. If you take an individual that is raised and surrounded by theft and larceny their entire childhood, odds are really good that environment is going to shape them. It's not a certainty, but it's a good likelihood that they eventually will commit a crime of that nature. And when they do and they are arrested, there isn't anybody that says, well, we can't hold them accountable. Look at how they're raised. Their environment made them do this. We take that into consideration, and it is sad, but at the same time, there was a choice that was made. There was a decision to break the law and commit this crime. We hold people accountable. And that's the situation that our text is talking about. We live in a world that encourages us towards this choice, that conditions us for this choice. But at the end of the day, you and I and everyone on planet Earth has made the decision to harden our hearts to the sovereign and absolute authority of God and the beautiful truth He has to share with us. And from that calcified position, it leaves us, as verse 18 says, if we back up a little bit, in a position of ignorance. And that's not an an insult, it's just a literal meaning of the word. We don't understand who he is, or what he's like, or why his ways are the way that they are. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who's just just not initiated in the faith, and you start talking about your beliefs and and why we live the way that we live, and they just got that look on their face like, "What what are you talking about? Uh, I, I used to work with a guy named Tom at Domino's, and Tom was a great guy. I loved working with Tom. But he was just somebody who grew up just like not initiated in, in religion or the faith at all. And so I was telling him about our you know, church and where we went and what church was like. And, like you know, and then we have this time of giving where we lay our offerings and our tithes down. And he goes, well, what's that? I go, what? The tithe. What's that? No, tithe. Tithe, Tom. What is that? Well, we give a portion of our, our income as an act of worship. And he goes, no, you guys don't do that. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's part of how we worship. He goes, no, 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 no. Somebody's just putting that in their pocket. That, you, that can't be what you guys do. It was just such a foreign concept to him. And he didn't mean it in an offensive way in any way. He just was totally oblivious to, to what worship was like. And, and that's how our world often finds itself. When we don't understand who God is as the absolute authority, his truth seems so strange You look at the first century world that that the book of Ephesians was written in. There's this insistence in God's word upon self-sacrifice and self-denial. But in the Roman world, it was very much a might-makes-right society. And so the idea that Jesus could be victorious by laying down his life was such a weird idea to them. And the same thing kind of holds true in our world today when you think about it. There's this insistence upon self-denial, upon delayed gratification, and in a world that is all about, I want what I want now and I'm going to get it, sometimes that seems like such a foreign concept. There's an ignorance, an unawareness of God and His ways. When His authority is not absolute in our lives, His truth seems so odd. 
And that ignorance inevitably leads to, as verse 18 says, a separation from him, and more specifically, the life that is in him. When we don't know God, when we don't have that relationship with him, when we're not walking with him, we don't find the blessing and the life that he offers. And even more sad, verse 18 says, we have a darkened understanding. We look around the world, but without the light of the world to illuminate the truth, we just have this dimness that we dwell in and have to try to figure it out. This is a way of illustration. Let's, let's cut the lights for a second. We're going to keep the projectors on because they take forever to boot back up. But we're going to dim the lights. We're going to hit the spotlights. It's, it's dark in here. Like, we can kind of see, right? But if you are to really look for something, let's say like you dropped a pin or your glasses or something on the ground, you might have a hard time finding it. And this is kind of how the world works. It looks out and it sees dimly. And yet insists that we see fine. You know, we understand what's going on. We know the truth. We're going to try to walk around and navigate all the perils and the pitfalls and the potential problems and issues that life is going to throw at us in the dark. Now, you and I, we hear that and we say, I don't know if that's a good idea. But what seems so obvious to us who see in the light isn't so obvious to those with a dim and darkened understanding. Let's bring the lights back up. And that's the mindset, the condition that our world finds itself in. We wonder sometimes, like, do they really not see how this is a bad idea? And the answer is no, they don't. Because without the absolute authority, the objective truth of God to illuminate this world that He's created, we're left to rely on other sources of truth, truth that comes from blind guides, from people that see just as dimly as we do. It's the blind leading the blind in many instances. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in verse 17 that the thinking of this world is futile because it's those with dim understanding separated from God and His truth trying to make the most of it and navigate all the pitfalls and problems. It's a recipe for pain and heartache. And at the end of all things, it is empty. And it's at this point we need to realize just because the world rejects God as absolute authority doesn't mean that it rejects authority in absolute. I mean, there's still this void in our hearts. People are designed to, to follow something. I mean, Bob Dylan, he wrote the song, You Gotta Follow Somebody. You Gotta Serve Somebody. That was the name of the song. I don't listen to Bob Dylan a lot, but I do know the song. You Gotta Serve Somebody. And it's a song about the various authorities that people will submit themselves to, whether it be a, an employer or, a, you know, in the a military, a commanding officer or whatever. We are designed to serve someone. So with God's absence here, with our hearts hardened to Him, there's this void that needs to be filled. And so we go in search of some authority and some truth to rely upon. And sometimes it's a, it's a different religion. Or sometimes it might be a, an institution like the government or the university or you know, our favorite sports team. Or, or maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a favorite professor, or maybe it's a, a, a leader or a politician. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's an influencer. Maybe it's a journalist or an author. We allow these people, their voice, to become an authority in our lives and their words to become a truth by which we discern and live by. You can kind of see why our world has so many different competing ideas and so many different truths floating around, why there's confusion, why there's heartache, why there's pain. You can see what Paul's talking about here. Verse 19 actually kind of hits on this. Whenever we look for something to fill that void, we can look at other people. Most of the time, we just look at ourselves. That's what verse 19 gets at. Having lost all sensitivity to God, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. And they're full of greed. 
So at the end of the day, whenever God's removed from that central seat of authority, we go looking for something to fill it, most of the time we're going to just settle for ourselves. Our ideas, our truth, you may have heard the statement, my truth, it's a subjective truth, and really it's founded upon nothing more than my proclivities, my appetites, my hungers, and we convince ourselves that what I want must be true and right and just and worthy because it's what I want. It's kind of like playing baseball without an umpire in some ways. If you don't have that objective voice to call strikes and balls, you're left with this subjective, my truth kind of play where who are you to say that that was out of the strike zone? I'm standing on the mound and where I'm at, that looked like a perfect pitch, man. It was a masterpiece. You're out. And you can kind of see where that just wouldn't work, this relativistic play. But the sad reality is in life, the stakes are a little higher than strikes and balls. We're talking about morality. We're talking about ethics. We're talking about community and and sociology, how we treat one another, how we interact with one another. We're talking about eternity and where we stand with God when all things are said and done. The stakes could not be higher. And a subjective, my kind of truth is not going to be a firm enough foundation to stand upon. Just because I feel it in my heart and my mind doesn't make it objectively right or true when I stand before an objective judge who holds all things to an account by his will and his standards. This is the situation we find ourselves in. So when we ask, you know, can they just not see what's going on here? The obvious, what seems so obvious, the answer is no, they really can't. There's dim and darkened understanding. And this is the point where you and I, as people who believe and who have had our eyes open, we have to take a step back and we have to remember why this whole conversation even started in the first place. Look back at verse 17. So I tell you this, and assist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do and the futility of their thinking. This whole conversation is not about judging a world who doesn't understand God. It's not about condemning a world whose understanding is darkened. This whole conversation is directed at you and me. It's a call to action for us as believing people, as people that have been changed by the power of the gospel, to no longer live in these ways. Because the truth is, we used to. But now things are different. We've been transformed. And transformed people ought to live in transformed ways. That's what this has all been about. This whole series, much of the book of Ephesians, this particular section in the book of Ephesians, is pointing at us, saying, you must no longer live this way. Our passage goes on, if we want to pick up in verse 20. It says, that however, and let's just pause there for a second. Y'all know what however is, don't you? Yeah, it's a fancy but. It's just a $5 way of saying but. And if we were to go back to the Greek text that the New Testament was originally written in, what we find is it's the exact same conjunction as but. It's translated that way many other times. Just the English context, however, makes more sense. So this is a big but statement that we're looking at here. This is how the world lives. This is how the Gentiles operate. But that's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. There is a marked difference between those who are in Christ and who have been touched by the gospel and the rest of the world. Again, Jesus is not somebody we get to just tack on to the end of our lives and keep on living as if nothing has changed because everything has changed. We've been transformed and given new life. And do you notice the nature of this new way of life? It's learned. 
It's not something that just will naturally find its way emerging from our hearts and the proclivities and desires that we have. It's not something that will just organically develop in our minds because we're just so discerning of what the truth really is. The reality is you and I are not that different from the rest of the world as far as our flesh is concerned. Because we once stood in that same position. We don't get to stand in a seat of judgment because we lived in the world. Our hearts were once calcified and hardened to God's authority and truth. Our hearts once stood in opposition to Him, leaving us us with ignorance, unaware of who He is and what He's like and why He asks what He asks. We once wandered around this world with a darkened understanding, trying to navigate the twists and the turns, convinced that we could see fine, which was obviously a bad idea, that we could not recognize ourselves. And just like everyone else, we once thought with futility, aiming our entire existence at things that ultimately don't matter. That was us. And then one day Jesus happened. And maybe it was when you were a teenager, or maybe it was when you were in college finding yourself. Maybe when your kids got a little older and wanted to go to church, you started attending and and it happened then. Maybe it's happening right now as we have this conversation, but at some point the Holy Spirit poked a hole in that calcified shell and the gospel snuck in. And it took root and your eyes began to be open to the reality that there is a God in this world and it's not you. And this God delineates between truth and fiction, between right and wrong, according to his own sovereign and independent standards. And it is a standard that you and I had continually fallen short of. And yet, despite having denied this God his rightful place in our lives, he still reached out his hand. And he still invited us to come, and though we were dead, be made alive. And though we were distant from him and foreigners, he invited us to come and draw near and be a part of his family. And it all came to us at the low, low price of his one and only precious son's death. And it's through that invitation that came to us through the blood of Jesus that we were changed. That moment of faith where we said, yes, I am yours, Everything was different, and we were transformed. And transformed people don't go on living in old ways of sin and death. Transformed people live in transformed ways, a new way that is learned as we draw near to Christ and welcome Him as that seat of, in that seat of authority in our hearts. How do we do that? Keep reading in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. I love the fall. This is my favorite time of year. I always joke it's my favorite two weeks of the year, right? Because it doesn't last very long. But I love the fall. I love fall weather. And as I get older, the thing that is climbing higher and higher on my list of reasons why I love the fall is the fact that the grass stops growing. Um, I, I push mow. I don't like to mow. At our, our previous house, I could mow and trim the yard in about 45 minutes. At our house we moved to this summer, it takes me about two and a half hours. Uh, it's not my favorite way to spend the afternoon. And in the, the, you know, the height of the summer, usually the grass dies. This year it didn't. It just kept growing for some reason. Like, I was just drenched in sweat. And I've got dirt all over me and grass all over me, and I'm itchy, and I know I smell bad, even though my wife assures me, no, you smell like daisies, right? 
Like it's, it's not a fun thing to be. I can't wait to get in the shower and get cleaned up, to get washed. I take those old clothes off, I get clean, and I feel so good. And it's so good, in fact, that even the thought of putting those dirty clothes that are just cold with sweat back on my clean body just sort of just kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit, if I can be honest with you. It just feels gross. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Because when you get out of the shower, when you're clean, you put on clean clothes, new clothes. That's what everybody understands. That makes sense. And that's what our passage is getting at. Once upon a time, we wore garments that were soiled with sin and dripping with death. And then Jesus found us, and we took the old self off, and he washed us clean in his own blood. And it makes absolutely no sense to go pick up those soiled, deadly garments and put that old self back on. To live as if nothing else has changed. There's a new self, a new garment, clean, washed, white, pure. Put that on. Live in a new way. Take off the ways of sin and death. That's the encouragement that's taking place in this passage. There is a new way of living. Transformed people live in transformed ways. And it starts here. Transformed ways of living begin with transformed ways of thinking. I hope you've noticed the thought language throughout our passage this morning. It started in verse 17. The futility of their thinking. A darkened understanding. In verse 22, we read there's, there's a corruption that is taking place of the old self. We need a renewed mind, right? There's a lot of thought language happening in this passage because the assumption, and I'd argue the correct assumption, is that behavior flows out of our mindset. Our minds need to be renewed and restored. We're talking about verse 22. Let's just read it. There's a really significant line in here. Put off your old self, which, pay attention to this verb, is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That is a present passive participle. What that means is that that corruption is presently happening to our old self, and it will continue to happen until an undefined point in the future. So the corruption happens, and it continues to happen to the old self. That's why we can't just keep on living our old lives as if nothing has changed. It is corrupted by deceitful desires. Those my truths, those hungers and appetites that seem so good and appealing and appeasing to me, will never lead me to the truth. At the end of the day, it will be revealed to be empty. They are deceitful. They promise one thing and deliver another. And that's why we've been rescued through the power of the gospel and our eyes have been opened. Take off that old self that is presently and will continue to be corrupted. Put on the new self with a renewed mind. A new way of thinking about life and the world around us. As different transformed people, we need something new to filter our minds through. Maybe at one point we just filtered it through whatever the media said or whatever our professor said, for whatever our employer said, whatever the government said, what, you know, whatever the authority was. Maybe that was the filter through which all information in life came. That's not the truth anymore, though. There is another filter, something that we look at first and foremost that delineates between truth and falsehood. It's what does God have to say about the matter? The one who sits in absolute objective authority over this world, the one who declares objectively what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what is false, does he have something 
to say on this, because if he does, that's where I'm going to find my truth, is standing on him. There's this picture that floats around the internet a lot, and it's similar pictures. You've seen it. It's two people looking at the same figure, arguing, is it a six, is it a nine? And there's usually a caption that accompanies it. And something along the lines of, just because I see things different from you doesn't mean I'm wrong. We just have different perspectives. And there's a valuable lesson in here because the truth is, there isn't a single person on planet Earth who is all-knowing, all-seeing, who can perceive all reality accurately. That's just not us. We all have a fixed point of time. We all have a perspective. And when we humble ourselves and we listen to one another, we can learn a lot and actually get a fuller picture of reality and, and maybe understand one another a little better. There's a really valuable lesson here. But where this illustration starts to fall apart is when we recognize that there's a third unseen figure in this picture. You see, somebody put that number on the ground. It didn't just miraculously show up. They wrote it. And when that third person wrote it on the ground, they knew in their minds what they intended to communicate. So there is an objective answer to what this is supposed to be. The thing that we have to ask is, where do we find truth? Is it in the creator and the author of that number or merely those who perceive it? If we want to take that into our lives, the question becomes, where do we find truth? With the author, the creator, the sustainer of life or those who merely perceive it with a darkened understanding? Which voice are we going to build our lives and our truth on? I think we all know the better answer. The trick is training our minds to first and foremost default to this. What does God have to say on the matter? What does His Word have to say? What do my fellow believers, what kind of a fuller understanding can they help me arrive at as we talk about God's Word together? I know what, what all this reading, I know what these experts, I know what everybody says, and that's good. Hear information. Filter it through the author, the creator, the sustainer of life, the object of authority, of object of truth. This is where we must default in this world of ever-competing truths and information and ever more complicated information overload. Because it may be simple things like health information or facts and figures or what did this politician actually say today, but the reality is it's going to come to moral statements and ethical statements, statements of faithfulness and allegiance. And as a community of people who have been changed and are different, we need to learn to embrace a new and different kind of life that starts with a new and different kind of thinking, a renewed thinking. So here's our assignment, our next step. I want to encourage you to start cultivating this new mindset. Every week, we have a Bible reading plan that we offer everybody through the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, we advertise it on our app, on the website, on the email that goes out. Um, there's another one that just escapes my mind right now. Any communication channel we have, it's advertised there. And I would encourage you this week, if you're not already, to participate in this reading plan in particular. It's a plan that leads us through the book of 1 Peter, which will build nicely into the series we start next week on 1 Peter, but also will help build on what we've talked about today, navigating a complex world and discerning truth and reality as it stands upon God and His authority. It's a 22-day plan. Read five days a week. You'll get four weeks, and it'll help build this habit 
of looking to God's Word, looking to what He has to say, of renewing our minds, of contemplating and mulling over this complicated world through the lens of God's objective authority and truth. Not my truth, not the truth I hear on TV, the truth I read on Facebook, the truth that whatever politician I I align myself with has to say. What does God have to say here? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your patience. We thank You for Your mercy. We thank you for your kindness towards us. Once we were lost, we were like sheep without a shepherd. And you brought us in, and you made us new, and you gave us life. You gave us hope. You opened our eyes to see the wonders of who you are. And we're still learning how to do that. We're not perfected in this. We still make mistakes. And yet you continue to show us your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your unfailing love that reaches out, that changes us, that lifts us up again and again, that dusts us off and reminds us, you are new. Put on the new self and walk this new road. I pray that you would give us discernment in a complicated world, that when we hear, when we perceive, we would engage with information, but from the, the standpoint of you in absolute authority and control, that the choices that we make, the lives that we live, would not be defined any longer by political parties or careers or or various social theories, but, Father, that we would be defined by you in the gospel as living people who belong to God's family and that through our lives, your wisdom and the wonder of who you are might be seen to a world that just doesn't understand you many times. That we would reflect the light of the world in such a way that those with darkened understandings would come to see the truth and that you would be lifted high and glorified in this world. That's our hope, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.